Our scripture today is found in the book of Acts, chapter 4. I'll be reading from verses 32 through 35. The book of Acts follows the gospel of John. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you'll find Acts. And the Greek word uh, translated as Acts is praxis. So it helps us to see the practice or the acts of the apostles as the early church came to be and as the power of the Holy Spirit uh, began to be manifest in among and through God's people. So it's a great uh, passage to help us to see some of the characteristics of the early community of faith. Hear God's word. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. And God's people said, Amen. These first few verses of chapter 4 offer a brief glimpse into the life of the Christian community in Jerusalem after the resurrection of Jesus. Some time had gone by since Pentecost and the early church began to meet together and worship together and do all of the things that you see happening in in chapter 2, which is one of the other summaries that Luke provides for us in, uh, in what was happening in the early church. But by this time, they are really focused on the power that is manifest through the preaching of the resurrection. And this power had created a community like none other. Luke tells us that because of the apostles' teaching and proclamation of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead, that the number of believers had multiplied greatly. Many who had heard the message believed, and the number grew to some 5,000 believers. They were a resurrection people, just as we are a resurrection people. Every first day of the week, every Sunday when we worship, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Worship among the early church was moved to Sunday to celebrate His resurrection. Sunday as we worship is resurrection day for resurrection people. The apostles said to the religious authorities, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Imagine what would happen today if Christians all over the globe had this same mentality and said, we cannot help speaking about what we have experienced. Well, people were drawn to this ragtag group of disciples. There was something different about them and others wanted to know more. Perhaps like the character Stranger in T.S. Eliot's Choruses from the Rock. The stranger is asking about Christian community, and Eliot writes, when the stranger says, what is the meaning of this city? Do you huddle together? Do you huddle close together because you love each other? 
what will you answer? We all dwell together to make money from each other? Or, this is a community. And the stranger will depart and run to the desert. Oh, my soul, be prepared for the coming of the stranger. Be prepared for him who knows how to ask questions. And I believe that you and I need to be prepared for those who ask questions about our faith. You see, we are compelled to be different, a different kind of community, and we must be prepared for people when they ask questions such as, so what makes the church community any different from the other groups around our area? I believe that we see the answers to that question right here in the post-Easter community of believers in Jerusalem. They were not called Christians until much later. Acts chapter 11, verse 26, I believe. At this time, they were still this ragtag group of followers of Jesus. They were called followers of the way and became known as people of that resurrection And I believe there are four unique qualities that we see in this early community that should guide us as a community of faith today. In your bulletin, there's a space if you want to jot these down as we walk through them. I I didn't work up notes like I do sometimes, so just feel free to pin them down as as you wish. But I see a commitment to unity in the book of Acts describing these early Christians. They were all in one heart and in one mind. They were in one accord through the common experience of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They had experienced change within themselves, and this change was something that made them uniquely special. This inward change yielded social change or outward change. In other words, the people around them were changed and transformed because of what God was doing in them. These early believers embraced a commitment to one another that people just hadn't seen before. The words in one heart and mind uh, actually come from a Hebrew phrase that indicated being in a complete in complete accord with one another. We see it through the Old Testament. We also see it in the New Testament. For example, Paul expresses this unity in Ephesians 4 verses 4 through 6, where he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. A commitment to unity. A commitment as a unified body to be God's witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth and a commitment to one another. Church, we must be committed to one another if we are going to have an opportunity to reach the communities around us. Tom Rayner writes, The world will know if we are Christians or not by the way we who are believers act toward one another. When you become a Christian, God expects you to be part of His church. But when you become part of His church, God wants you to be a unifying presence there, he writes. And then he states, we must never be a divisive force. We must love one another unconditionally. And we must be willing to sacrifice our own preferences to keep unity within our church. Perhaps we can look to nature for an illustration. God is the author of all creation. And 
Sometimes we just look around and we can see a way to illustrate something. Our neighborhood here in Midlothian has a nice-sized pond, and along with that pond come Canadian geese. Some of you may have Canadian geese where you live. Often when I am trying to get to church on Sunday mornings, the geese will take their own time to cross the road, and I will have to stop and patiently wait on the geese to finish crossing so that I can make my way to church. Just recently, some folks in our neighborhood put some fake border collies around the pond. They're they're those wooden silhouette cutouts of border collies, and they're on sticks, and they're stuck in the ground around the pond, and they waggle like this so as to scare off the Canadian geese. The other morning when I was running, I saw the border collies there, and around the border collie, I saw a whole bunch of Canadian geese. Well, Canadian geese fly in a V formation, and some years ago, uh, an educator in Baltimore in the early 70s named Dr. Robert McNeish preached a sermon as a layman in his church titled Lessons from the Geese. And his lessons have been used in leadership development and team building and in corporations and all of that. Many of you are probably familiar with it. But he was very intrigued in watching these geese as they modeled unity. When geese fly south or fly north, they fly in that V formation. Research has revealed that as each bird flaps its wings, it creates an uplift for the bird immediately behind it. By flying in a V formation, the whole flock adds some 70% greater flying range than if each bird flew on its own. Likewise, when a people come together with a common goal and a sense of unity, they can go farther, they can go farther more quickly and have more success than they could ever have by traveling alone. Researchers also discovered that whenever a goose falls out of formation, it suddenly feels the drag and resistance of trying to go at it alone, and it quickly gets back into the formation and takes advantage of the lifting power of the bird immediately in front of it. If we as a people can have as much sense as a goose, we will stay in formation, unity, so that uh, others who are headed in the same direction will help us to arrive to a common destination. When the lead geese gets tired, he rotates back into the V and another goose takes its place. And this models for us the necessity for us to take turns and to allow others to lead hard jobs in the church. That way we don't get fatigued and burned out. And also, it allows another person to exercise their gifts and abilities that might not have happened otherwise. Researchers also discovered why geese honk, honk, honk. It is because they're encouraging the ones in the front to keep up their speed, to keep going. Geese also honk, honk, honk so that others will know where they are. It's a way that they communicate to each other. Maybe some other reasons, but geese tell us that it is important to be in constant communication with each other. Finally, when a a goose gets sick or tired and it falls too far back in the formation, other geese, typically two of them, will fall out of the formation and follow that one to protect it. They will stay with it until it is able to fly again and to get back into the formation. 
If we could just have the sense of these geese, we would perhaps make up our mind that we would stand together like that as Christians no matter what. What's true for a geese, one writer says, is true for a church. What's true for a church is true for a family. I'm limited in what I can do alone for God, but when we are virtually unlimited with what we can do together, united we stand, divided we fall, we can do more together than we could ever, ever do alone. The earlier believers got this. They were in one heart and of one mind. They were committed to one another and committed to proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. We see another commitment, and that is the commitment to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 33 tells us that they continued to testify to the resurrection. This was the linchpin of the community. Without the resurrection, you don't have a church. It would have just died out. But Jesus was alive. Jesus was not dead. He appeared to many, and they were not afraid to tell others what they had seen and heard. They couldn't, they could not not tell it. The Apostle Paul shares several of these eyewitness accounts in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And after that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, He appeared to me, Paul writes, as one abnormally born. Paul didn't write of the women who first saw the resurrected Lord, but the Gospels help us fill in those components so we can see all of these eyewitness accounts of Jesus in His resurrected form. The leaders of these early Christian communities recognized that it was their job to continue proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. It is said that one mark of the continuity of the Christian church is the faithful passing on of the apostolic witness that He is risen, He is risen indeed. And we continue to do this Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to commemorate that Jesus rose from the grave and appeared on that first day. Because of the relentless proclamation of the resurrection by those early believers, because of the great Christian councils from Nicaea to Chalcedon to people like St. Augustine and the reformers like Luther and later the Wesley brothers and people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the good news of the resurrection has continued to be preached. But most of us sitting in this room, most of us sitting in the choir loft today, didn't hear the message of the resurrection from these spiritual giants. We didn't sit at the feet of these great people. We received the message from people who told us Bible stories at Vacation Bible School. As we learned hymns and Christian songs, as we spoke liturgies and prayers, more likely we received it from parents and grandparents and Sunday school teachers and pastors and priests, perhaps a military chaplain or a coach in school or a college roommate, many other opportunities that you and I heard the message of Jesus Christ. Whether born and raised in the church community or grafted in later into the community of faith, we have all witnessed the power of the story of the resurrection. 
We've caught the vision of a glorious, life-changing assertion that Jesus died on the cross for us. He paid it all. And that He has promised us a glorious future. That future is accessible and at the hand of the community of believers where testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is given. You and I have got to keep telling the story. We cannot stop telling the story. We cannot leave the resurrection out of the story. You might be familiar with the Jefferson Bible. You know, Thomas Jefferson was a believer in God. Scholars say that he was a deist who believed, he believed that God created everything and set it into motion, but then was not intricately involved in the day-to-day activities of the earth. And he struggled with some believing the miracles recorded in the scriptures. He also struggled accepting the resurrection of Jesus Christ on faith. So he created his own New Testament. He literally took maybe like an exacto knife and cut out sections of Scripture and pasted them. This is the old timey cut and paste. Pasted them into his own version of the Scriptures. And it omitted the resurrection. His New Testament ended with Christ's entombment. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, our New Testament beliefs do not end in entombment of Jesus. They only begin there because Jesus is alive. He is resurrected, and that is the power that we have through our faith in that. Today, there are some people who don't understand it or can't rationalize it and struggle with accepting it. And let me just say that we have to take it on faith. There is a point at which we just have to go on faith and say, I don't understand it, but I'm going to believe it because of the testimony of the people who I have heard and the life transformation that I have seen in them. Maybe we've just got to listen to the words of Martin Luther King Jr. who said, faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. Faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. That's tweetable people, all right? Let people know that you heard a quote from them today that can be life-changing. A commitment to unity, a commitment to proclamation of the resurrection, and also we see a commitment to share everything they had. The Scripture says they owned properties and sold them and gave their resources up for the benefit of the community. They did not consider themselves as owners, but rather considered what they owned as from God, that God owned everything. We see this example in Barnabas at the end of the fourth chapter as he owned properties and sold them and gave the monies and laid them at the feet of the apostles. Barnabas and others embraced this way of living so that no one had any need. We... um, We know this took great commitment. You don't get to that place without a significant commitment. Last week during spring break, our family took a few days off on vacation, and we traveled to the Outer Banks. We stayed in a little place in Nags Head. And we were watching TV, and I think it was around the news, and I kept seeing this commercial over and over again for a fitness center that was trying to attract new members. And their tagline of their commercial was, No Commitment. They kept repeating it through the commercial. No commitment. 
No commitment necessary. No commitment. $5 down, $10 a month. No commitment. $5 down, $10 a month. No commitment. They really didn't want you to use their facilities. They just wanted your money. No commitment. And that is not what happened in the early church. And that does not work in the church today. People who look at Christianity as just a religious practice or something that they're obligated to do are missing it. It is, it is a commitment to uh, the story of the resurrection that needs to be told and a commitment to the people of God who need to be cared for and the community around us who needs to hear a word of hope and good news. We need to be committed as these early believers were committed. And they had a commitment to serving the poor. The Bible says that there were no needy people around them. The Jerusalem church gave so much. Maybe they weren't really wise because later on they struggled financially and they had to depend on the other New Testament churches that had begun in the Mediterranean region like Macedonia and Philippi and Corinth to collect offerings and send them back to the church so that they would be able to survive the legacy of their generosity had been instilled within the others like Paul and Barnabas who went out on these missionary journeys to plant these churches. And you and I are the same way. Look at all that we have around us and it is because of the generosity of you and the people who have come before you. And there are people in our community of faith who have their needs met because you have a commitment to them. And right here this week, you all are serving the needs of Caritas, who are women from the homeless community and are finding a home here for a week. And you are preparing meals for them. You are talking with them, praying with them, providing other resources and encouraging them as they try to get their feet back on the ground. We serve the poor. We have a commitment to unity, to be one body. We have a commitment to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have a commitment to share the things that we have, the resources we have, and we have a commitment to serve those who are poor. Let us be unrelenting in our commitments as a church that others might know the peace of Christ. Dr. Tom Long is a preaching professor, well-known author and pastor. Some of you all went to hear him speak at the Lenten lunch at St. Paul's Episcopal Church earlier this spring. And he writes that theologian Karl Barth once remarked that to say the old line from the creed, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, does not mean that we believe in the church. It means rather to believe that God is present and at work in the church. And that in this assembly, the work of the Spirit takes place. We do not believe in the church, but we do believe that in this congregation, the work of the Holy Spirit becomes an event. Long writes, Barth's words rang true for me some years ago when I was invited to a church in a nearby town to take part in a special evening service. The church had planned this service to be educational and worshipful. Similar to what we did on Maundy Thursday where we celebrated the Passover Seder meal and reminisced what Jesus and his disciples would have experienced that Thursday night of the last week of his life. The staff had planned this service and the idea was that they were gathered first in the sanctuary and Dr. Long would teach them about the Lord's Supper 
and then they would go down to the basement and continue the service around the meal tables. And at each table would be ingredients to bake their own communion bread. And those of you with small children know what's happening next. At each table would be flour and all of the ingredients necessary to make the dough for the communion loaves. The plan called for each table to make their own loaves and then go to the church kitchen and put them in the oven. And while the bread was baking, then they would talk around their tables and there were some exercises that they were given designed to help them talk about their experiences in the faith. And it was a great idea. But like a lot of, well, staff ideas, you know, I've had things that I've tried to do over the years that just flopped and this one sort of did. While they were waiting problems started happening, children at many tables began to play in the baking ingredients, and white clouds of flour began to billow over the tables, and the uh, people got covered with, with flour. It was just a mess. There were delays in the baking of the bread, and it was just agonizing, and some of the tables ran out of things to talk about. Children grew fussy and weary, and I think the adults did too, says Dr. Long, and the room was filled with commotion and restlessness. The planners had dreamed out this wonderful service of excitement, innovation, peak learning, and moving worship. But what happened was noise, exhaustion, and people trying to make the best of a difficult situation. In other words, despite the rosy plans, it was the real church worshiping down there in the basement. Finally, Dr. Long says, the service ended, and with little little to no relief, I was able to pronounce the benediction, the peace of the Lord be with you. And just as I said that, Dr. Long says, a little child's voice from somewhere in the back of the room called out strong and true, it already is. Just that, it already is. But with those words, the service was transformed into a service of great joy and holy mystery. That small voice captured what the Gospels are trying to say, that in the midst of a church that can claim nothing for itself, a church of noise, confusion, weariness, and even fear, the risen Christ comes to give us peace. The peace of Christ be with you. Because the risen Christ comes to inhabit our empty places, then, as the child said, it already is. And the church with nothing suddenly becomes the church with everything. What makes our church community different? The risen Christ inhabits our empty spaces and places, and the church with nothing suddenly becomes the church with everything. May it be so. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for this Resurrection Sunday that we can gather and proclaim that you are alive, that your Holy Spirit is active and at work among us. Help us not believe in the church, but rather place our faith and trust and belief in the power of the resurrection that breathed the church. I lift up each one gathered here today. There are some who just simply need a word of hope and peace, and I hope that they receive that today. Others need some encouragement. 
Others might be leading out in front and are growing weary and need somebody else to come alongside and help them. God, thank you that we have the opportunity to be a church that is committed to you, committed to one another, and committed to the church, to the community around this church. In Jesus' name, amen.